Welcome to the Lawyerist Podcast with Sam Glover and Aaron Street. Each week, Lawyerist brings you advice and interviews to help you build a more successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now, here are Sam and Aaron. Hi, I'm Sam Glover. And I'm Aaron Street, and this is episode 177 of the Lawyerist Podcast, part of the Legal Talk Network. Today, we're talking with Gabriel Chung about billing flat fees in unpredictable cases. Today's podcast is brought to you by LawPay, Spotlight Branding, and New Law Business Model. We appreciate their support, and we will tell you more about them later in the show. I love Gabriel. We got to spend time with him at TBD Law 3 in rural Missouri in the Ozarks, where he was <laughs> way out of his element. Uh, and it was super fun to see him be a little uncomfortable there, as he had a great time and we got to know him. And then I got to spend some more time with him in Las Vegas a couple of weeks ago when he was speaking on a similar topic to what you guys are going to be talking about today at Lawyernomics. Yeah, Gabriel's pretty great. And one of the reasons I wanted to have him come on is to talk about, as you'll hear, why you can bill flat fees for unpredictable cases, which is something I did. And it's one of those conversations that has popped up again and again and again over the years. And it's like going paperless, right? My firm is paperless. And somebody or many people will chime up and say, oh, you can't really go paperless as a lawyer. Which reminds me of a video that I just stumbled across on YouTube. I occasionally watch Casey Neistat, and he made up his own Chinese proverb, which is that people who say it should not be done should not interrupt those who are doing it. And I think, you know, that comes up for me a lot in law practice where people say you can't do things and I can think of people who I know who are doing it. And there are some good reasons to take things into consideration. But you know what? Like, just give it a try and see how it goes. Yeah. And it's cool that Gabriel, I mean, he practices family law, which is probably one of the primary practice areas where we usually hear the most pushback on, well, you can't do flat fees in family law because you never know what's going to happen. And he's figured out a model that works for him. And whether it works for you or not is a totally separate question. But the idea that it can't be done is just not true. Yeah. So give it a try. I also want to encourage you to go and watch Lawyerist Lens. All you have to do is Google Lawyerist on YouTube and you'll find it. Google it on YouTube? Search it on YouTube. <laughs> yeah, it has become generic enough in my head that I can't get it right. Go to YouTube, search for Lawyerist or Lawyerist Lens, and you'll find it. The most recent episode is with Alma Assay. We talked about when it might be time or might not be time for lawyers to stop practicing law and go out and try to build something else. So check out Lawyerist Lens. It's also on the front page of Lawyerist if you want to find it there. I think you'll enjoy that brief video, brief conversations with really interesting people. So now we've got a brief conversation with Alex Sue from Logical, and then we'll jump into my conversation with Gabriel. My name is Alex Sue, and I'm an account executive at Logical. I used to work for a big New York firm, but I found that it didn't align with my mission for fighting for the little guy. So I joined a smaller firm, and at the smaller firm, I found that they were really successful by leveraging new technologies. So I thought that the technology part of it was super interesting, and so I joined Logical as my first step out of the practice of law. Hi, Alex. Thanks for being with us. And I suppose since Logical has a non-traditional spelling, we should spell it out for people. That's L-O-G-I-K-C-U-L-L.com, obviously. So Alex, when we start thinking about discovery and uh, discovery management software, I think that probably starts when you're talking about discovery with opposing counsel. So when you know you're going to be giving or getting a huge pile of documents, what sorts of issues should you be thinking about? When you're on the defense side, the form of documents that you produce is probably not going to matter a whole lot. You probably want to provide less 
metadata than more. But if you're requesting documents, you'll want to ask for specific types. Uh, and in particular, if you can get it, a native documents, because that'll help the review process downstream when you're looking through documents to find evidence for your case. That'll make it a lot easier down the road. What does native documents mean in this context? So native documents in this context, especially when it comes to emails, uh, you're looking at files that you would open with Outlook or Gmail, and these would not be PDF versions of emails. A lot of times we talk to folks who uh, ask for PDF versions of emails, and it's really hard to look through them. But if you have a native version that you can open with the original program like Outlook, you can then have a lot a richer data set to look through so you can filter out and, and search for specific documents. Right, because then you've got, they're basically text files that are marked up with identifiers and things rather than trying to scan a printout of an email or something like that and then do text recognition on it. You just really want the source. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. So once you have the source, you can then run searches and filters for specific things like the date or who sent the document, who, who received it and who, who modified it. Gotcha. What about when you when you actually get that huge pile of documents from opposing counsel? In 2018, what should you be doing with that pile of documents, whether it comes on a stack of paper or on a disk or something else? So if you have a stack of paper, you're going to want to scan them in and make sure that they're available electronically. And a lot of scanning programs now have OCR so that you can turn uh, those images into searchable text. If you receive electronic documents, uh, very often we hear uh, producing parties not including searchable PDFs or searchable text. So you're going to want to put it into a reader that will automatically OCR everything so you can run simple searches and find the text that you're looking for instead of going through them one by one. I realize we're talking to a discovery vendor, so you're biased here, but I assume it's a lot easier to manage that review in software like Logical than to just sit with a pile of documents and page through them one by one. Yeah, and that's absolutely right, Sam. So if you have it electronically stored somewhere, you can do things like you can flag them and organize them in certain ways. Uh, you can do things like create subsets and map out relationships between the documents. So instead of having everything sit on a, a computer somewhere, you're able to keep everything organized in a way that you can quickly retrieve the documents you've organized. And I suppose you can kind of understand what it is that you know from the documents without keeping it all in your head. Exactly. So you don't have to memorize everything. You don't have to worry about, you know, especially when you have larger teams or if you have contract reviewers, you can categorize them in a way that uh, you don't need to reinvent the wheel every time you want to explain what's going on and how the documents fit together. You can create categories and others can log in and take a look at them as well. So if listeners are interested in learning more about Discovery and Discovery 3.0, uh, Logical has a white paper, How Small and Medium-Sized Firms Can Thrive in Discovery 3.0, and it covers things like what the market opportunity around discovery is, how improper doc review methods can hurt your client's case, what is Discovery 3.0, and more. So you can find that at lawyeristdiscovery.com. Logical set that up so it'd be a little bit easier to type, lawyeristdiscovery.com. Alex, thanks so much for being with us today. Thanks very much, Sam. I'm uh, Gabriel Chung. I am a divorce attorney based out of Boston here in Massachusetts. I've been in practice for about 11 years now. And I think what is unique about my firm that everybody does want to ask me about is my flat fee billing model for divorce litigation. And my clients also are extremely interested in it because it does provide a lot of predictability for their divorce cases. Awesome. Thanks for being with us today. And I totally want to ask you about that. But first, I want to ask you about something that came before that, which is you didn't start this firm, right? You bought it. 
No, I didn't start the firm. So I started out my practice straight out of law school. Um, that was 11 years ago, like I said. And I started just like anybody else that was hanging up the shingle, I guess, at that time. I named myself the Law Office of Gabriel Chung. It's kind of boring, right? <laughs> it's about as creative as most of us are. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it was 11 years ago. It was, you know, the beginning of the internet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, at the time, you know, I didn't really have much prospect. It was sort of, when was it? That was about 2007. And if you can bring yourself back to 2007, 2008, that was sort of like the low point for lawyers, right? It was the, when the, for everyone, really for everybody, it was when the housing crash happened and law firms were not only not hiring people, but they were laying off people left and right. Hmm. So I think I was sort of pushed into starting my practice, but also I knew sort of the towards the end of my law school career that this is what I wanted to do. Um, I wanted to do family law. I wanted to, you know, talk to people. I wanted to engage in that drama. (laughs) And I didn't want to work for other people. So that in the back of my mind, I had already prepared myself for starting my own practice. So, you know, that's what I did. And I did it for, I would say for about two, three years. And I was given the opportunity about two, three years in of purchasing a firm that I had previously interned for while I was in law school. So were there other buyers on the table or did you, were you specifically somebody they sought out to sell it to? Yeah. So I was in a unique situation. It wasn't like an open bidding situation. It was an attorney in a relatively uh, small firm. She had about, I think at the time about three or four attorneys, one or two paralegals. And it was a general practice up in the North shore of Boston. Uh, she did mostly real estate. There was some family law, estate planning, immigration work. And I kept up that relationship with her after I had interned for her in law school. Uh, and she had sent a lot of cases my way when I had my solo practice in terms of family law, estate planning work. Hmm. So I was, you know, really appreciative of that. Uh, she really helped me sort of figure out not only how I wanted to run a solo practice, but I also learned how not to from the things that she was doing as well. So she approached you to buy it. How did she value her firm? So this was the unique thing. She had a personal reason as to why she was closing down. And and it was mainly because she was moving to the West Coast uh, with her husband. So if I had not come in to buy it, Um, I don't think she would have put out an open bid Hmm. uh, for her firm. So in terms of the value for her firm, there was not another buyer for me to bid against. So I didn't really have much competition. So you just kind of came up with something fair? Yeah, exactly. And And how did you do that? So at the time, because she was doing a lot of hodgepodge of general practice stuff, my idea for the firm was that I was going to move it down to where I was, which was a little bit south of Boston. I had moved the firm down. And then also, I also wanted to strip away a lot of of what the practice area was. So I valued it based on only the practice areas that I wanted, which was the family law. Hmm. Most of her practice was real estate. And she basically, uh, we had agreed that she would farm that out before I would take over. And I picked up, I think, about a handful of her family law cases when I picked up the firm. So you basically, you got the brand name, Infinity Law Group, and you got some clients 
I guess I'm, I'm wondering, so like when you look back at it now, was that a tipping point for you that really launched? Um, I mean, how do you think about that purchase? Was it a good idea? Was it fine? Was it? I think it was fine. I think I could have just as easily rebranded myself by, uh, you know, uh, starting uh, a new LLC with a new name with no history behind it. I think I would have done exactly the same thing. Um, I would have done otherwise. It's just that I think because I had that relationship with that previous attorney and I was sort of contracting out with that attorney for several years that I sort of just had this connection, I guess, to the name of the firm. Yeah. In terms of the goodwill, I really had to build it up, rebuild it up regardless because this was no longer a general practice firm. I wanted to uh, rebuild it as a family law firm. And I changed the logo and I uh, moved the location anyway. So in terms of goodwill, uh, I don't think I bought the goodwill. I had to rebrand anyways. So give us an idea of how much it was. Was it close to 5000 or 50000 or 500000 Oh, no, it was less than $5,000. Okay. <laughs> yeah, gotcha. absolutely. absolutely. It, it was not a big a money purchase. It was more of a, for her, like I said, she was closing anyways. And I think she, part of her wanted to see that the firm lived on after her. Gotcha. And for me, it was also sort of, oh, I like the name and I've been working for, with it for so long. I sort of also wanted to see the name of the firm live on, even if it looked nothing like it did before. Well, that's cool. So you look back on it as it was good and it, it wasn't a ton of money. So it was a good investment. It allowed you to pick up a brand you loved and a few clients and off you go. Yeah. And I wanted to rebrand anyways, because it, it was at that time where, you know, I, I, I was getting more and more business and I was reading a lot of these marketing things online about naming your firm and also having an exit strategy. And I was thinking, you know what, if I build this firm bigger and bigger and I have associates and eventually maybe I do want to retire. And the law office of Gabriel Chong is kind of a bad name to hand off to somebody else. Without me, right? <laughs> right? Exactly. So, so you know, I think there is this new trend towards uh, naming firms that have nothing to do with the owners themselves because yeah. it does value the firm more. I really want to start talking about how to bill flat fees in divorce matters. But before we do that, I think and so that we don't have to interrupt ourselves later, we'll take a quick break to hear from our sponsors and when we come back, we'll dive into that. So we'll be right back. Did you know that attorneys who accept online payments get paid 39% faster on average than those using traditional payment methods? With LawPay, the only payment solution offered through the ABA Advantage program, you can accept client payments online, via email, or in person. No equipment needed. Visit lawpay.com lawyerist to sign up and get your first three months free. Trust the only payment solution developed for attorneys and recommended by 47 state bars. LawPay. The legal environment is more competitive than ever, and small law firms are feeling the pinch. With over 1.3 million attorneys in the United States and counting, it can be hard to stand out from the crowd. That's why Spotlight Branding helps lawyers become unforgettable. Spotlight Branding is a different kind of internet marketing company. They don't put their clients on the SEO hamster wheel. They don't ask them to burn thousands of dollars on speculative pay-per-click advertising. Instead, they're focused on the fundamentals of legal marketing that have worked for centuries. They use the internet to build a premium brand for solo and small firm lawyers. They put systems in place to create top-of-mind awareness, allowing their clients to maximize referrals and repeat business. It's the smart way to grow your law firm. Learn more at spotlightbranding.com lawyerist. 
If you've ever considered doing estate planning but think it's too dry and boring or have been afraid it might not earn you what you need because you have to compete against LegalZoom or the dreaded $1,500 estate plans, check out the website estateplanningrules.com to get a free guide that lays out step-by-step -step how some lawyers are regularly commanding average fees of four dollars to $5,000 per estate plan, and you'll discover why regular, everyday people are happy to pay well for estate planning services that you'll love to provide. That's estateplanningrules.com, brought to you by New Law Business Model, where you get to love being a lawyer again. Hey, one more thing before we get back to the conversation. If you haven't already taken the small firm scorecard and you are a solo or small firm lawyer, do it now at go.lawyerist.com scorecard. Look, you listen to this podcast, so you must know the practice of law is changing in important ways. And sooner or later, you are going to feel the effects of those changes in your practice if you aren't feeling them already. So what's your plan? If you are like most of the lawyers we've met over the years, even if you understand the trends shaping the past, present, and future of law practice, you probably don't have a plan. You may not even be sure where to start. So that's why we put together the Small Firm Scorecard, to help lawyers understand what they need to do to position their firm to be successful in the future. It's a free self-assessment. 50 questions for small firms, 40 for solos. The questions cover your goals, strategy, systems, marketing, client service model, finances, and people and staffing. It only takes about 10 minutes, and at the end, you'll know exactly what you need to work on based on your own assessment of how you're doing on each item. Like I said, it's free, it takes about 10 minutes, and you'll end up with a to-do list to prepare your firm for the future. So take it now at go.lawyerist.com scorecard. Okay, we're back. So Gabriel, every time flat fees comes up, you get people saying, well, of course you can't do it in you know litigation, or often contested divorces is the exception, or litigation generally. And I always point out, look, I build flat fees for litigation for years, and it was never a problem. And I know that you bill flat fees in contested divorces. So I really want to dig into that because I think that's a bullshit excuse that people use because they don't want to commit to flat fees. Yes. So, <laughs> but maybe we can back up and you can talk about like when and how and why did you decide to do flat fees? And then how did you start applying them to not just the easy things, but the hard things like contested divorces. Yeah. So when I first got started, I did just bill hourly, just like any other attorney, right? You do what you know. So that's what I knew. So I asked around and saw what the prevailing hourly rate was and I billed and, and, and I, you know, got more experience and I sort of got an idea of how much work and also how much value uh, uncontested cases are versus contested cases. Um, and it was about, I would say, probably about three years in that I started hearing more and more about turning away from the billable hour. And I think actually the first person that probably I read about it was from Matt Holman. Yeah. He had this blog called The Unbillable Hour at the time, I believe. Um, I think most of that, those posts have now moved over to Medium or something, but they're still out there. Yeah, but he was the first person I remember talking about it in detail. Um, and really advocating for that idea of that, you know, things should have a value to it. People should know what they're paying for up front. And lawyers should not be billing hourly because we're not selling our time. We're really selling our advice and our expertise. Uh, and if that's the case, then why are we charging by the hour? Well, and you had a really great quote just recently from the stage at Lawyernomics that I saw on Twitter, which was, you said, my time is not any more valuable than my client's time. That's not what I'm selling, right? Exactly. Something to that effect? <laughs> exactly. Um, I, I, I don't know where this idea came from that an attorney sells time. 
I don't think we're that different from any other type of business, whether or not we're running a deli or an accounting firm or um, you know, a retail clothing shop, whatever it is, we're selling our legal services. So if we're selling our legal services, then why are we basing it on time? Mm-hmm. We're not selling time. Um, so that's where I think that this connect comes in. And I think when I first got started, I did have, you know, it's, it was a trial and error kind of thing. I, uh, I had no model in which to base my flat fees on. And so for me, I think it was a gradual process. I started off just doing flat fees for uncontested cases. And is that because you too were afraid of billing flat fees in contested cases? I think it was because I didn't know how. Yeah. <laughs> I, how, how do you value that? right? How do you start to quantify not only to yourself as a business model, what your legal services are worth, but how do you justify it to your clients? I didn't know how to do that. But it was simple for me to do it for uncontested cases because I've done so many of them. And because people aren't fighting in those cases, I know exactly how much work goes into them and how long they last. Yeah, so you can start from time as sort of a one of your reference points for valuing the case. Exactly. And that's where I started. I started taking a look at all my billable hours from beforehand and saw, saw okay, for uncontested cases, this is basically on average how much it was. And then I would see what other people are doing. Because here in Massachusetts, when you do divorce cases, at the end of the case, uh, the divorce attorneys have to divulge as part of the financial statements, how much attorney's fees they've charged. Mm -hmm. So it was an easy way for me to also see what other people are doing. Right? Mm, Yeah. And so that's sort of how I got started in valuing things. So how did you start offering it to your clients? Because I, there are sort of two narratives that I always see um, like when somebody asks in our Lawyers Insiders Facebook group about, you know, alternative billing models, there's always a lawyer who says, you know, I offered it to my clients and nobody seemed interested. And there's always another lawyer who says, yeah, I do it all the time and my clients love it. And I suspect what's going on there is that if you offer people an, an equivalent choice between something new and experimental to the client and something familiar and comfortable, nine times out of 10, they're going to go with the comfortable one. And then, and really what you're just doing is giving yourself an excuse not to try anything new. <laughs> but, but I'm wondering, like, did you, how did you start that out? Did you overlap it? And did you have some adventurous clients or did you just decide here's how I'm doing it now? And here's the offering. The clients don't know whether or not it's a novel idea or not. I suppose that's most, true. <laughs> right. Most clients are hiring you as their divorce attorney or whatever it is as an attorney, probably for the first time in their lives. Mm-hmm. We don't hire attorneys all the time, right? Mm -hmm. Probably the most common thing that people do have attorneys for is probably like real estate closings. And usually those costs are built into like the closing statements. So you don't really actually, you're not engaging that attorney directly, nor are you concerned about how much you're paying your closing attorneys. It's just wrapped up in the closing costs. Most people are engaging you for the first time in litigation, most likely. So whatever you tell them, they'll accept as that is the general practice. And so did you just say, here's my flat fee without talking about hourly fees as an option anymore? No, actually, I give people a choice. Mm. I always give people a choice. But the way I handle it is I tell them what the choices are. And then I tell them what most of my clients do and the pros and cons, and they make their own decisions. Now, I guess maybe it's the way I say it. But I say it in a way that it's not really a choice (laughs) because I'd rather do the flat fees uh, or the fixed fees the way I do it Uh, because it means that I don't have to send out invoices. Um, I don't have to bill my clients. I don't have to chase after my clients for money. Um, I don't have any receivables, meaning my 
my clients don't owe me money. I prefer it that way. So I push that option. I push yeah. That option. I, I mean, I, I think that's what I was suspecting is that even when people, whether or not you say this is my only option, if you're going to present the options, it's which one do you present as the default, the normal, the comfortable option? And I suspect you do something more or less like what I did, which was I gave people a flat fee. Um, I talked to them about like, look, if you want, I can also bill you by the hour. Um, mm -hmm. It may end up costing the same. It may end up costing more. I'm willing to take on the risk of it costing more. Um, and here's my fee and giving them, but making it that the default preferred option is the flat fee. I give people an hourly fee option. I absolutely do. I quote my hourly fees and my retainer is usually half of what my flat fee is. Mm -hmm. um, and I tell people, yeah, it's, 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 it is less upfront, but in long litigation cases, it's going to cost you more in the long run. So if you want to take that risk, that's up to you. Uh, I understand that some people can't come up with that big chunk up front. It's different for everybody. However, I will tell you for hourly billing cases, it's basically giving me a blank check. Gotcha. How do you deal with, because I, I think this is where people freak out, is what is your contingency plan for a case that blows up? Sure. So, so let me tell you how I do my fixed fees. So it's not a true flat fee in terms of just one fee for the whole case. Mm -hmm. I don't do that because for a couple of different reasons. One is what you just talked about, which is, well, what if the case, some cases are really not complicated and it's unexpectedly not complicated. And then there are some cases that are unexpectedly very complicated. Right. Um, you need to build in some contingencies for that. Um, and also for family law matters, I also need to build in an incentive for my clients to settle because over 90% of uh, divorce cases, people do settle. You don't go right. to trial all the time. So if there's no incentive for people to settle, if I charge them one flat fee, what's the incentive for them to settle? If mm -hmm. it's going to cost them the same to fight all the way through, versus settling. Because of those two reasons, I can't just quote them one flat fee for the case. So the way I do it is basically I charge them a fixed fee for every four months of representation. Hmm. And the reason why I do the four months, two reasons. One, it's hinged on a time standard that we have in Massachusetts in terms of how cases have to proceed along. There is a track uh, that the courts will push you to settlement or to come to court and stuff like that. So mm -hmm. there's a track time period. Number two, it's because, again, I want to force my clients to settle at those four-month marks. At four months, usually discovery is either ramping up or towards the end of it. So I know that's a good point for people to assess where their case is and to say, okay, now we know stuff. Do we want to settle? If we don't want to settle, this is, you pay me for another four months and this is where it's going to go. Let me ask what I think is the obvious question there then. Why bill it at four months rather than it's going to cost this much through the close of discovery? Sure. And absolutely. So there's another attorney down, I believe in North or South Carolina, Lee Rosen. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't think he's in practice anymore, but, but he did come up no, with... No, he's like traveling around Asia and things. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But he talks about flaffy billing all the time as well. And uh, I recall when he was practicing, that's what he used to do mm -hmm. in terms of he would charge a flat fee for drafting all pleadings up to a certain point, And then he would charge a certain flat fee for, you know, X number of discovery work. And then he would charge a flat fee for the mandatory mediation phase. And he would do it, bill it out that way. Right. I am essentially doing the same thing, but I'm not wording it as such because I have found that 
it's very difficult for clients to understand what pleadings are. That's a damn good point. I mean, <laughs> what, what discovery means, or when you're saying I'm going to charge for an, uh, you know, X dollar for a hearing, but I'm going to charge significantly more for trial. Clients don't understand that. They right. think, oh, well, we're going to court for a hearing. We're going to court for a trial. Why are you charging more for trials? Well, it's because trials are very complicated, right? Yeah. You have witnesses. You have to prepare people for it or stenographers. Whereas at a hearing, usually it's just you know, attorneys just on representation making a case in front of the judge. Clients don't usually talk at all. So you just bill the same fee for each four months of the case. Yeah, it's exact. essentially billing for those different phases. Mm -hmm. It's just that I don't have to explain to client what those phases are. Huh, that's clever. I like that. And it's, and it's way more client-centered. I used to bill like there's the before trial and the trial fees and they're different fees and we would explain why that was. Um, and I think the difference between trial and not trial is you can get clients there, but it's nowhere near as simple as four months. Exactly. And I tell people, if we litigated this case in full, it'll probably take us maybe about a year, a year and a half to two years. And so if you're going to budget for the case, I will charge you every four months. And there's, you know, two years out if we're going to fight all the way. So if you can't afford to go all the way through, don't start the process now. That's really smart. Do you ever find yourself with a four-month period where almost nothing happens and you feel bad about it and give money back? Absolutely. So that happens all the time, actually. Um, so we are people at the end of the day, right? We, we have to be human, I think, to our clients. So even though my fee agreement says there's an expiration on March 31st, if I feel like nothing has been done, I'm going to tell my clients, hey, you know, I'm just waiting for the other side. They are slow as heck. So I'm not going to penalize you for it. I'm going to extend your fee agreement for another two months. Mm -hmm. I'll, I do that regularly. Yeah. Okay. That's number one. Number two, if I see like, if the cases, if their fee agreement ends on March 31st again, and if we are extremely close to settlement, if I know that if I just had two more weeks, we'll close out this case. I'm not going to charge them for another four-month block. That's just not fair. Right. That's not client You'll prorate them a month or something like that. Or I'll just extend it yeah. for free. Because quite frankly, that's the right thing to do. So as long as you communicate that to your clients, you're telling them you're extending their fee period, and you're telling them why, I think they really, really appreciate that. So what mistakes have you made along the way on flat fees? Oh, I used to undercharge yeah. a lot a lot. Um, and again, the longer you do this, the further away you get from this idea that your flat fee is an approximation of your hourly rates. Yeah. I mean, that that's something that I noticed is the moment I stopped thinking about my work in terms of time, I started finding more creative ways to solve my clients' problems that had nothing to do with time and were on, happened on different scales and faster and more efficiently. And It is a factor in how you set your fees, yep. but it should not be the only factor, right? Because if it's the only factor, it doesn't make sense because you're going from a very precise model of measurement, which is hourly billing to a guesstimate. That doesn't make sense. Why mm -hmm. would you go from a very precise thing to a, to a not precise thing? That yeah. doesn't make sense. So it can't be that it has to be, as I said before, uh, you're selling your expertise and you're selling your legal advice. So how do you value that? How do you value your legal advice? And there's a lot of different ways to do it. Like I said, in the beginning, I really undervalued. And as I've been in practice longer and longer, um, I'm able to resolve people's cases faster because I have more experience. And, and that's more valuable 
not less. Just that is right. <laughs> that takes less time. Yeah, but it's significantly more valuable mm-hmm. because I'm not dragging people and their kids through unnecessary litigation. It's the one million dollar phone call problem I remember from professional responsibility in law school, right? Like if you hire the lawyer who's able to resolve your case for with one phone call and you pay him a million bucks, is that a fair fee? Well, probably. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that's where the disconnect comes in with at least the regulatory authorities and Mm -hmm. also with attorneys is uh, the, the basis for the quote unquote reasonableness of fees is still measured in hourly billing. Right. If 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 the bar comes in and asks you, well, is that fee reasonable? They compare it against an hourly billing charge. But why is that the basis of reasonableness? Well, that brings up a really good point. One of the questions that I haven't really decided the answer to yet is, so what do you do about fee petitions when there's a motion or a hearing or something where you have a right to recover your fees? Mm-hmm. How do you petition the court for your fee when you've, you're doing a flat fee? I still do. So in our jurisdiction, we can request fees if there's like a, a contempt on the other side. If the other side is not doing something they're supposed to, mm-hmm. we can file a complaint for contempt and we can ask for attorney's fees. It's usually not given in family law cases. It's just judges are very hesitant to punish another side. Mm-hmm. Unless if it's like second, third, fourth time they've been slapped on the wrist. So that's number one. But in cases where we are asking for fees from the other side, there has to be a way for us to ask the court and to justify our fees. Mm -hmm. So the only, again, the only way for us to do it is through hourly. So even though I don't bill my clients hourly, I always keep track of my time. For, for, a, for a lot of reasons, actually. Yeah, I suppose that's really valuable for knowing, for analyzing other things about your business. Absolutely. I need to know where my time is being spent during the day. I need to know, am I underbilling for a case? Are, are these cases so complicated that maybe I should be charging more? Not simply because of my time, but because if I'm spending a lot of time on it, maybe the issue is complicated and it's valued more. Mm-hmm. So I do keep track of my time for that reason and also to justify my fees if I need to ask the court for fees and also if, you know, an issue comes up with the bar and they come back at me and say, well, is your fee reasonable? I can show it, show it to them. Mm-hmm. And I've never had a situation where my hourly billing is so off where people are saying this is unreasonable. Usually my fixed fees come out to be um, slightly lower than my what I would have billed hourly. And do you disclose that to the court and give them the option of giving you the fixed fee? Um, I have never asked for more fees than I have been paid, mm-hmm. and I wouldn't, uh, because then you're, you're, there's a windfall there. That does seem weird. Although, yeah, yeah. as somebody exactly. who builds on contingency all the time, I had never been paid when I asked for fees. So. <laughs> <laughs> But if you take a look at sort of how attorneys usually bill for hourly, though, you never get 100% of your hourly charge anyways, right? That's fair. Yeah. Right? Not only are you chasing your clients and not collecting, but you know at the bottom line, before you send out that bill, you have to discount. You have to either take out some line items because it's not stuff you can bill for or... You just have to make a show of good faith to your client that you're giving them a discount and making them feel better. So it works out. It works out. It works out to approximately the same. It's just that, you know what? In my model, I am always getting paid. So if somebody who's listening is persuaded that they can finally stop objecting on contested matters and start billing flat fees, um, what advice would you have for them on getting started? I think everybody's 
business is different. So there are a lot of ways you can charge non-hourly, whether it's a just flat fee for the entire case, or maybe it's based on quarterly billing, or maybe it's based on phases of litigation, or maybe it's a hybrid of a couple of different things. You can do it. Figure out how to do it rather than coming up with excuses about how you can't do it because you're spending the same amount of brain power and energy. I might as well figure out something that is doable rather than coming up with excuses mm-hmm. that can't be done. And, it, and in the end, it, it may not be the right solution for you and your clients, right? I mean, I assume even you have some situations where you might still go back to hourly billing. I have about, like I said, I give my clients the option, right? And I would say at any one time, about a handful of my clients do take the hourly billing option. Hmm. And that's fine. That's absolutely fine with me. Um, I keep track of time anyways. And I just you know, know from experience to take enough of a retainer to cover everything. And if the retainer is low, I do chase after them to replenish that retainer. Mm-hmm. And I will not work if my retainer is not replenished. So, but does it take more time to <laughs> yeah. chase after clients for that and to send out the billings? Absolutely. You know, I just haven't had that much of a problem with it. There's only a really small percentage of my clients are hourly right now. Gabriel, thanks so much for talking with us about buying a firm, about billing flat fees and contested divorces. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Sam. Make sure to catch next week's episode of The Lawyerist Podcast by subscribing to the show in your favorite podcast app. And please leave a rating to help other people find our show. You can find the notes for today's episode on lawyerist.com slash podcast. The Lawyerist Podcast is produced with help from Lindsay Calhoun and edited by Paul Fisher. The views expressed by the participants are their own and are not endorsed by Legal Talk Network. Nothing said in this podcast is legal advice for you. Mm-hmm.